Welcome to Biota Live. I'm Tom Barblay, and this is being recorded live on TalkShoe, August 20th, 2010. Biota Live is a continuation of the Biota Podcast. For more information on the Biota Podcast, check out biota.org slash podcast. So, uh, some news and notes. Well, obviously, the Artificial Life 12 conference is just starting. In fact, probably as I'm recording this podcast, people are... Uh, waking up to get ready to go to the uh, A-Life 12 conference. And I've heard an early report from Bruce Damer that there are a lot of, uh, a lot of luminaries that are attending. I've heard that uh, Larry Yeager and Craig Reynolds are there and a few other folk. So my hope is that Bruce will record some conversations and also provide some audio for both uh, his most recent talk at the Games Conference that he mentioned and also his A-Life 12 presentation, so we can put that into the Biota feed. I've seen the slides from both, and they both appear to be covering relatively familiar topics associated with the Evo grid. So my hope was that uh, we could uh, push Bruce into a rogue or somewhat radical direction, um, particularly sending Jeff Kloon his way, but also following recent discussions and obviously his last appearance on Biota Live. But from the slides, it appears he's pretty well stuck to the script of the Evo grid. So... Um, maybe a little bit more prompting will be needed in the future in order to uh, move Bruce in particular directions. But some other updates, um, particularly with regards to the idea of the community site or forum. I was contacted by Marislav Karpis over the week uh, about his interest in assisting. And what I'll probably do is pull together a group of folks who are like-mindedly inclined. There are a couple of artists in the UK that have expressed an interest in participating in at least the design components of the new forum. So for me, uh, pretty well flat out over the next few uh, months by the looks of things. I have a Dick Gordon book project I'm working on currently, plus a lot of updates in Noble 8, but I'll, I'll save that for when we have Jeffrey Ventrella on the line, as, as my hope is that he'll be calling in this evening. But if you two are interested in participating in the... Uh, I don't know what you call it, online community site, online community portal development, please get in contact with me, tom at noble8.com. And also, per the end of the last show, I'm really looking for new content for the uh, Biota Live feed. We cover a lot of topics uh, perennially, and also it's nice to have uh, new voices in the feed. So if you're listening to this, if you're a long-time listener, or if you've just heard this podcast for the first time, and you have something even eclectic, even on the fringes of Artificial Life or even outside the Artificial Life forum, please consider uh, participating. And whilst uh, I'm currently recording Friday, 8 p.m. Pacific, I'm more than happy to record at other times and get other folks involved. So if you are listening to this in podcast form and you're in the Southern Hemisphere uh, or you know Australia time or UK time or this kind of thing, please get in contact. I'm more than happy to uh, reschedule the BioLive recording. We've done them previously in the mornings on Saturday morning, my time, which is like Saturday afternoon, evening, uh, European time. And certainly uh, mid-afternoon, my time, works out very well for uh, Australia and New Zealand and uh, areas in Asia, basically, that this time frame covers as well. So I'm more than happy to move the time of the recording uh, for any participants or any folks who are interested in participating. And similarly, as Bruce Damer is doing currently in terms of recording audio, 
It's always a pleasure to receive audio contributions. The quality of the audio doesn't have to be particularly good. Folks who've listened to Biota Live for a number of years will know that we will take pretty well all audio qualities uh, for the feed. But if you have a talk or something that you think is of interest, really it doesn't have to be um, an hour-plus format at all. It can be a, a short piece, maybe 10 minutes, 15 minutes, something like that. Just an observation or a thought you want to put out to the Biota community. I'm more than happy to receive those kind of pieces of audio as well. Really think of this feed as you are a listener also as your own feed. And if you find things that are interesting, topics of discourse, this kind of stuff that you'd like to have discussed on Biota Live or you too would like to participate yourself, contact me, tom at noble8.com. So I believe we have uh, Jeffrey Ventrella on the line. How are you? Very good. How are you? Oh, pretty good. Pretty good. So I've done the news and notes for the show. Obviously, A Life 12 is uh, is kicking off currently. So a couple of updates from uh, from Bruce on location there. Um, so this evening's topics were kind of numbered and varied, but I also wanted to introduce some of the ideas that we discussed while I was on location in your part of the world. Um, what about a month ago now? Slightly more than a month ago now particularly with regards to the idea of uh, Newtonian dimensionality. Is that something that you've continued to look at following our talk, or would you like a, an introductory refresher for the folks listening in? Yeah, well, I certainly uh, I certainly remember that talk, and it's been in, it's simmering in the back of my mind. So, yeah, okay. maybe you can uh, kind of bring us up to speed on that. So the idea is that Newton had a particular view with regards to numbers as they mapped onto space, and... I guess the easiest way to understand this is to think of physical dimensions like acceleration or velocity or mass or these kind of things as combinations of uh, underlying more fundamental uh, dimensions. So, um, you know, in metric terms, meters and seconds and newtons and these kind of things and imperial terms, uh, feet and seconds and um, what have you. But the idea was more powerful to Newton because rather than thinking of numbers in terms of, for example, uh, the the example I used with you on location was the idea of a table, that if you took two sides of the the table um, in order to create the area of the table, um, assuming that it was a rectangle or a square or something, that these two numbers had a um, a different spatial and dimensional relationship. And certainly when they were... Uh, multiplied together, or in the example uh, you provided, uh, the the square root or these kind of things, they had different dimensional relationships, which meant that the numbers couldn't be thought of just in terms of their number space, but also it was important to think of them in terms of the dimensionality. And Newton had a very rich uh, view. It's it's pretty hard to summarize other than to describe uh, the way that I have except that it kind of created considerably more elaborate constructions in his own mind, and it produced a different way of viewing both physics but also calculus. And when I, you know, when I studied Newton in, in high school and went on to university, I kind of had an implicit sense of this, but it was only through reading uh, Newton's writings, which I think are still available via Google, that you get the... The, the full strength of the man's views with regards to dimensionality. So the question is, how is this applicable to artificial life? Well, in every simulation that we create, whether irrespective of what we're simulating, 
there should be an idea of dimensionality that comes through the things that we are constructing within the simulated environment. And whilst, uh, and this is a conversation that I've had with Peter Newman uh, as well when he's appeared on BioLive previously, whilst we might want to think that physics is just completely overwhelming, and particularly those who haven't studied physics, you know, that it's an alienating set of concepts, if you keep in mind this notion of dimensionality, you can actually solve most of Newtonian physics and quite strikingly also some kinds of problems in quantum mechanics as well because it, it adheres to the same kind of space even if the underlying mechanisms of the space aren't quite the same. So I think it's, it's fundamentally a topic in artificial life as well, particularly as we construct more elaborate and rich simulations and also as a kind of introduction to physics as maybe being slightly more art than uh, than it is, I don't know, I don't know. Well, how, would, how would you see physics being embodied in the simulation sense of which, you know, people might find less alienating? Yeah, well, I mean, when when you mentioned this idea of uh, Newtonian, I forgot what you called it, you had a name for it, Newton something. Spatiality, perhaps? Uh, yeah, perhaps that's what it was, yeah. And it, it kind of reminded me of the idea of... Um, thinking not so much in terms of numbers, but in terms of uh, other units of measurement or other uh, other semantic units to, uh, to, to think about or, or to compute on. Um, and so, um, uh, yeah, I think there's just a lot of potential in thinking that way. And Certainly, and it's a good way of finding quick solutions to... Um, simulation problems as well. I mean, particularly when you think of quite elaborate simulations, be they uh, fluid simulations or space or energy use or these kind of things. If you think of them in terms of Newtonian dimensionality, you both get calculus and also realism kind of for free if you think of uh, numbers associated with their, their particular kinds of dimensions. Yeah. Uh, by the way, that uh, makes me Sorry. think about um, Friedkin and Wolfram and those people who are promoting, and a lot of people are uh, promoting the idea of an inherently digital universe. Um, and, uh, you know, every time there's a new technology, it gets people thinking about how the world works, and the technology often informs or influences your thinking. Um, and this is perhaps a whole other topic and a topic that I'm, I'm certainly not the, uh, an expert in, but um, uh, if, if computers had been invented and if they, instead of being digital, they were analog or something else, um, how would our world views be, be different than they are now? Mm. Right? So, so in other words, what if, what if uh, computers, instead of using numbers and bits at the, at the very basis, were using something else that, that really wasn't based on number, but it was based on space or time or some kind of, um, you know, uh, not, new, not numbers. Maybe you can, based on dimension or something. Does the idea of analog computing, where it's really um, almost like a, not necessarily a probability or a percentage, but some space between zero and one, uh, which does produce, a very interesting and very different um, idea. I guess I'm trying to unpack what you're saying uh, here, Jeffrey. My sense is that, that there are 
This also comes back to the idea of event simulations as opposed to time-based simulations and the removal of discrete time in some regard. Ah. I think the, the, what, what the, the problem we have, as you say, because we deal with um, computers that are not just binary but are oh, almost kind of integer-centric, is that we can yeah. think of simulation space very much in terms of discrete quantities. And I'm always interested in methods of simulating which remove us from that. So in my own thinking, I've thought of uh, first event-based simulations, which means that you, are, you, you can move quite quickly through time because you're actually looking for specific events rather than just doing uh, time cycling. And you can calculate various physical quantities through that. But even more abstractly, I'm interested in um, things like rather than um, creating a simulation in the time domain, create the simulation in like the frequency domain or something like that, some other domain which then maps back into the time domain and see what happens from that. And that idea comes very much through physics. I think the problem with contemporary computing is very much that we do, as you say, create the problems around the particular solution space that we have, but it's it really is down to um, I, I don't know the, the people that I think of who have done work in this area are always on they're, they're not really part of the artificial life community they're part of more abstract um, typically physics based simulations, but looking at things like um, for example ion channels and the the membranes in ion um this is um like brain synapses as opposed to uh, ionic transfer and they look at um time rather than being uh like discrete linear in a kind of stochastic fashion which actually creates um not just probabilistic time but the idea that um time actually bifurcates and then bifurcates again then bifurcates again because what they're doing is tracking a probability space rather than a time space, if that makes some sense. So I agree with you. I think there are probably a number of ways to create quite interesting uh, and unique simulations that will probably yield greater solutions. And to reiterate what you were saying, a large part of that is breaking oneself away from discrete time cycles. Um, this is very much, I guess, theoretical simulation. <laughs> I'm trying to think of what abstract. Yeah. I mean, within physics, it's part of uh, it's part of an applied discipline, but it lends itself very heavily um, to uh, uh, possible worlds rather than the actual world. Uh-huh. But to, to agree, I think there are uh, potentially uh, a number of possible methods of. Um, simulating very interesting phenomena that weren't based just in discrete time cycles. Uh, although yeah. the kind of stuff that we look at typically, although, okay, let's consider an aqueous simulation that wasn't based in discrete time cycles. What would that look like? Well, the notion that basically information transferred in an aqueous medium is to do with the the um, travel either of waves within the aqueous, well, waves fundamentally, um, be they uh, like sonic waves or also if they were carrying food or oxygen or these kind of things. Um, so you could possibly make a frequency aqueous simulation uh, and it would look... Well, you would then obviously... Trans- because we are time-domain creatures, you'd have to translate it to time-domain at some point so we could observe it both in a frequency domain and a time-domain. 
But I think mm. you would get, in terms of actually, you once you remove yourself from discrete time cycles, you can actually find optimizations that will enable processing to be far greater. So you could probably see a lot of really interesting effects far faster if you kind of divorced yourself from discrete time cycles in an aqueous oh, simulation. Huh. Wow, it, would look, it would look very strange initially, but I think once people understood what was going on, and particularly if you had some translation, uh, then I think it could be very, very interesting. Yeah, yeah. In fact, uh, this kind of reminds me of what you and I talked about once um, when you were in town, and that was um, having a simulation where time is dilated or time changes depending on distance. Yeah, uh, and and I came up with this idea, and I think other other people, including yourself, uh, basically as a way of optimizing uh, simulation so that when things are in your immediate area and you're in your immediate time time space region, uh, they're running at a high resolution, um, and when they're farther away, they run slower and and lower res, um, which which of course is problematic if you want to have a persistent persistent uh universe that you're simulating but but who who knows maybe that might actually be simulating something real <laughs> well, this the notion as well i mean for example in in one's own life you have an immediate sense area and you have a quality of interactions in the immediate sense area but right. everyone that you know that is still alive is interacting in their own immediate sense area and the way that you find this information out after the fact is you know, through photographs on Facebook or emails or telephone calls. And the way yeah. in which we actually observe this information is through these kind of discrete parcels, which are very much, they don't seem bizarre to us. I mean, you wouldn't think that it's bizarre that you can't immediately sense all the people you know and their goings on, but this is the demands yeah. that we're making of our simulation space. So I think it's perfectly coherent, in fact, even real-world coherent, to have yeah. an environment that was heavily and a highly res simulated to a high resolution around the observer, with the yeah. view also that whatever was going on didn't need to have necessarily the same kind of visual simulation attached to it, but could easily contribute a, a narrative back into the you know the the observer's simulation. Now it does yeah. get interesting if you have multiple participants in that kind of environment, but then basically you just have like multiple spheres of this high resolution simulation and whatever else is going on is is going on in parallel. So I don't necessarily think it's problematic. I think the the break is this notion that things are actually fundamentally going slower outside the simulation the the, the observation sphere and in reality they're probably going on at exactly the same time frame just at a at a different resolution or a more meaningful resolution for, you know, uh, the, their own um, their own environment, but uh -huh. certainly I think this kind of idea maps very well onto really rich game environments more than anything, yeah. uh, because you know you have a notion of history or whatever is going on in, in parallel to the player observer, and if you have players that are actually observing it and interacting with it, so much the better because they're actually getting you know clock cycles there, but it doesn't alleviate the fact that there could be, you know, wars going on or great romances or these kind of things that would be reported back to the player through some, you know, through some human mechanism uh, which was intelligible. But I think the idea of, with regards to, for example, an aqueous simulation that was based on frequency means that the simulated environment 
has a slightly different quality. I guess it's the notion of frequency being the kind of unit of information in an aqueous environment, or at least the unit of information transfer. Uh, so it would be a very interesting simulation, I think. Well, I'm actually holding in my hand a book by Andrew Adamatsky, or who edited the book, um, and I've been uh, conversing with him on and off for the, for the last few years, and the book's called Collision-Based Computing. And it's got, I don't know if you know about this book, uh, it's very interesting. It's, it's got a, a whole lot of uh, projects and, and simulations and, and uh, thoughts about uh, computing, uh, creating computation out of uh, sort of collisions uh, and interactions of objects in, in, uh, in a uh, fluid um, domain, um, if that makes any sense. So, so the, the, lo the, the locations of computational events is not fixed. I guess that's one way to say it. Um, and this is something that Andrew has been working on for, for a while. So I know, I know his work through Framsticks, but this is an additional simulation, or is this through Framsticks? Oh, no, no. This is, you might be thinking of somebody else. Um, Andrew Adamatsky. Uh, I think you're thinking of, uh, I forgot Adamatsky. his name. Yes, Adamatsky yes. is, um, he's, is he the University of Michigan fellow? Or what's University of Michigan now is somewhere else from memory? I don't remember. But anyway, if you get a chance, check out collision-based computing. Um, and uh, it, it includes, or maybe it came from, I don't, I don't actually know the history of this whole line of thinking, but it's, uh, it includes a lot of the, of course, cellular automata-based computation, um, but, uh, but also other, other uh, ways of thinking about computation as emerging within very fluid and amorphous environments. Hmm. Uh, yeah, it's it's really interesting. I think it I think it can relate to, to a life. But anyway, that that sounds a little bit like what you're talking about. I don't know. Um, certainly, certainly. And the other topic that we spent a bit of time discussing was this idea of open source. Um, right. And certainly, since I gave my presentation at SRI. There's been a lot of additional source contributed uh, to, to Noble Ape. Thankfully, I'm having a, a breathing period currently. Bob Mottram is now focusing on uh, vehicle vision, which is fascinating in and of itself, but has given me some breathing time to go through the Noble Ape source code and actually add the Planet Noble Ape development or reintroduce that. So this cool. touches both on open source and also our mutual interest in, in planetary simulation. For folks yeah. listening in, you gave quite a quite a, a wonderful vision associated with your plans uh, with open source and uh, and gene pool into the near future. Do you want to expand a little bit on that? Maybe it's changed since we talked about the plans for gene pool. Mm-hmm. Well, um, recently, uh, uh, a friend of mine who who I worked with at at Linden Lab offered to. Uh, gene pool over to the iPad and so um, he uh, he actually was successful in doing that we talked about this about how 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 that could be managed and uh, apparently he's able to just sort of hook it up so that um, the C++ code converts to C objective C and it runs on the iPad it's a little bit slow and apparently the slowness is simply because of the graphics uh, the graphics performance um, not the simulation, um, and um, and so I was thinking that actually I was also talking to another friend of mine today about uh, 
um, how it might be beneficial for it to be uh, ported to a HTML5 JavaScript environment where uh, that's something that I, I would prefer not to do myself, but it could really launch it into a whole new, uh, you know, a generation of um, computing platforms. Yes, I mean, this is the funny thing with regards to the discussion associated with the Second Life client as well. I mean, since my uh, last um, Biot Live with, with Bruce, I contacted, I'm going to get his name the wrong way around, I think it's Justin Casey Clark, it could be Justin Kate Clark Casey, I think it's probably Clark Casey, uh, who is the primary developer of OpenSim, and we exchanged maybe half a dozen emails associated with what it would take to use the Second Life client is the, is the um, means of uh, viewing, for example, the Noble Ape simulation and I guess potentially also something that, that you were developing. And the general consensus following that discussion was exactly what you're saying, that HTML5 probably offers us more benefit uh, with considerably less porting time than the current Second Life client through, um, through OpenSim does. Uh. It does, however, as you say, leave a kind of gulf of work still open to someone uh, who is particularly passionate or, uh, yeah. I guess eventually we're probably going to have to bite the bullet and buy the books ourselves and uh, <laughs> yeah. consider it our responsibility too. But I think there's a lot of positive... Uh, well, I mean, I think a lot of the people who give this degree of positivity are old VMRL people who uh, or Vermal uh, who uh, are, are positive about another uh, Vermal-like methodology uh, uh, available to uh, to web browsers and these kind of things? And what's what's your sense of HTML5? Oh well, um, I've I've just started working with it uh, recently with a company called Emota, and it's building a, a application to run on the iPad. And um, so I'm I'm, I'm uh, Kind of back into doing more JavaScript again. Um, JavaScript has its uh, has its uh, sharp edges and 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 uh, quicksand holes and things of that sort that uh, make it a little bit difficult. But it's also very powerful. So I think it's uh, it's really just a matter of the uh, the world of the development world kind of scaffolding itself around JavaScript to make it much more uh, usable. And I think that's probably inevitable seeing how how uh you know how how much there is of it now with uh with mobile devices and browsers and everything. Certainly, certainly. But I think we're probably still dealing with a a server client kind of methodology. I think fundamentally due to the nature of the complexity of the environments that we're creating, there's still nothing that would be renderable on the client side in terms of the actual hard computing being done there. What we are really doing is providing a kind of visualization vista into the simulation environment through these kind of uh, interfaces. And in that regard, I guess I agree with you. I had the opportunity to play with an iPad through the week in terms of rendering and in terms of testing, uh, particularly the OpenGL capabilities. And as uh -huh. you say, with your experiences, um, mine was similar, that the, there may actually be some bottlenecks associated with the uh, the graphics performance for the kind of stuff that we'd be looking to do. But that responsibility always goes back onto the developer anyway, because there are 
you know, numerous tricks and techniques that one can implement, test, and learn through these kind of experiences. But I, yeah. I must confess my initial uh, euphoria, particularly spending time with you uh, and, you know, trying multi-touch on uh, an iPad and getting a sense of the potential uh, was meted by a degree of reality um, in the actual application. That being said, also, a lot of these applications that are coming out for the iPad and iPhone, these kind of things, have their own, not necessarily interpreted layer, but their own kind of... Uh, there seem to be, well, I mean, Unity on one side, um, uh, what's it called, AirPlay is another one of these SDKs. So I don't necessarily know whether the these SDKs are providing slightly slower than optimal uh, interfaces for these graphics environments. But, um, you know, time will tell. Time will tell. I think the thing that captivated me with the iPad, particularly uh, in terms of your work, is the ability to use uh, not just the, the touch interface, but the ability to turn, um, almost kind of slosh the simulation space <laughs> or something like that, interact with it in, in you know, utilize, maximizing the utilization of the aqueous effect, I guess. Yes, yes, that's right. Take your take your A life simulation and slosh it around and see what it does. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty much like I guess the ant farm being shaken by some uh, yeah some uh, precocious six year old or something like that. But well, I, I think the, the the main point I got from our discussion, although it seems like there's, there's been quite a bit of advancement, was that you did have the intention to open source at least the core of your prior Gene Paul Darwin Pond work um, for other folks who may have an interest in either doing optimization or graphics output or these kind of things. Is that still in your thinking? Yeah, it is. Uh, ultimately, I'd like to do that. Yeah. So, um, but right now, I'm, I'm uh, want to get this... Uh, Get this iPad thing figured out and um, and uh, get that going. And in fact, like I said, it's 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 actually already ported. It's just a, now it's a matter of figuring out the whole song and dance you have to do with with Apple to uh, to become a developer and and uh, to to uh, get your apps up on the store and everything like that. My understanding is that the there is a kind of disconnect. I mean, you can freely download all the all the developer source from Apple. However, if you want to actually put it, anything up on their store, you need to pay, I think, $99 annually, which just gives you the, the rights to put stuff up on their site. Right, I don't right. think they have the notion that if you're releasing it for, for nothing, for example, that you would get any kind of discount through that. In fact, the... The irony is when I, just before meeting you, when I went into Apple, I made the point that there was an iPad version of Noble A. And they, you know, looked very excitedly. And I said, it's not on the store, though. You just compile the source code and you can run it on your own iPad. My view is, you know, if they want to charge me $99 a year in order for people just to get access to the code, download Xcode and, and compile it yourself. Although... I think in all seriousness, there will probably be a stage where I will probably cough up the $99 in order to, um, you know, get a, a freely downloadable version of Overlay through the store. But like yeah. you, I think the tuning for the interface is the critical phase in that. And particularly now I'm looking at, um, 
Well, I mean, some background with regards to the sphere development, because you heard my talk at SRI, as did, I guess, everyone else listening to the feed currently. I got back and I started um, expanding the uh, map area associated with the simulation, both the map and the weather area. And it got to a critical size where it was just too big to put on the screen, even in a kind of zoom in, zoom out fashion. The interface just kind of broke and it just became a vast amount of information. And the only way to really simplify that, which sounds a little strange, but the only way to simplify that was to actually map that vast resolution onto a sphere. Because then you kind of a kind of intuitive zoom, you could see things rapidly, and you also had the kind of spin the globe phenomena where you could, you know, if you wanted to get to another place quickly, it was always just, you know, a few bats in either direction and you'd be there. Yeah. And also it kind of linked up with a whole lot of, well, originally circa 2000, but really more circa 2005 code that I'd been maintaining, you know, I think it is publicly accessible through. Uh, the Noble 8 stuff on SourceForge, but I've really found recently the way to get this code back into users to integrate it in the source code and then progressively well, move it from a single file just back into the simulation proper. So that's what I'm working on currently with the view that Bob Mottram has slowed down his, uh, his development pace, although the other beautiful thing about doing this development now is that it gives me the opportunity to go through Bob's code uh, and really get a sense of just the insight uh, more than anything. I mean, it reads very much like uh, the early Sims code. I know Will Wright, or maybe a friend of Will Wright's, posted his early Sims code on Facebook uh, recently. Um, so I'm not sure whether that... I'm, I'm assuming Will Wright... I think Will Wright actually linked to it. So anyway... Uh, and looking through that code, a lot of the social graphing mechanisms and the early interrelationship code is very similar uh, to the stuff that Bob implemented in NoBlab. I'm not sure if it's a, a homage or whether it's just the nature, like when you write any code that's like that needs to do something, it starts looking like other code, basically. Um, but that was very interesting. So it's it's a strange thing that when you add this additional social layer, it gives a greater degree of intelligence, in inverted commas, to the underlying entities. Uh, mm. So I've moved that code into something that's separate but still very much part of the simulation and, and we'll be integrating that further. The main issue which came up towards the conclusion of the SRI talk was this idea of visualization, that once you have all these interesting parameters, particularly we're talking about event-based simulation, particularly if the apes in their, um, in their future desires construct elaborate things that they want to go and do and see, which is really, not verbalized as the wrong term, and secured in a lot of the structures that Bob Mottram creates, to put those as kind of points on the graph and also identify where uh, you know, a particular ape wants to go and meet or talk or uh, form a relationship with other apes, how you actually graphically represent that. Um, uh -huh. So there's all this kind of complexity in visualization, which is coming through as well. I guess I'm kind of ignoring that initially while I concentrate on my sphere rendering, and then the way that will be represented, I think, will probably be through some kind of ethereal graphing or something that will attach all this information together. But it really is um, presenting new kinds of visualization problems, which I'm considering as I'm putting it all together on a sphere. I think the what you're describing with regards to not necessarily interacting with an artist, but at least interacting with someone who has a speciality in these kind of um, ethereal design problems is something that 
you know, I'm thinking about quite a bit. I certainly have a, a strong sense that one can wander through these things with some kind of a priori plotting, but it just takes a considerably longer amount of time than someone who has a, a visual sense, I think. Uh, and that's certainly been my experience with Nobelite to date. In terms of in terms of your work, I mean, you, you are fundamentally an artist, but you have also utilised other people's skills um, in terms of uh, visualisation interaction. I remember the test tubes in, in Darwin Pond, these kind of things. Do you foresee that if you move this um, development open source that you'll need to have additional artist contributions or really are things looking more on a kind of technical level currently? Oh, yeah. Well, it depends. Um, uh, the um, In my... Uh, I, I, I would... Ideally, I would like to bring in coders who are artists in the sense that um, uh, to to have kind of code driven uh, code driven um, art um, procedural procedural animation and physics and all that kind of stuff um, with with a with a, uh, a strong emphasis on um, making it very compelling. Um, um, and that kind of thing. Um, however, if uh, if the code could be could be developed in in a, in a very broad, uh, flexible, generalized way, then of course people could could layer on to the simulation various kinds of rendering, uh, you know, f formats, um, which uh, I think would be very cool. And that's that's something that um, actually I've been working with Brian Dodd. On on this idea of t of building a simulation that is very componentized in the way that you could use different kinds of rendering schemes on it. Um, it I, I don't know if that answers your question, but did, did you hear the most recent Biota Live with Steve Grand in it? No, I didn't. But you were telling me about that. Yeah, because I mean, this is exactly the same thing that Steve Grand was saying that the uh -huh. I mean, I think certainly as he was talking about Symmetry, he was also bemoaning the circumstances associated with kind of hard coding the various components to a particular graphics engine. And I think that's always the difficulty that we need some, I guess ultimately some way where we can um, create almost like a, a very thin membrane layer. So uh, irrespective of what we develop, it will always be able to connect to the, the latest thing, even if it, it may look slightly dated. But he was certainly echoing exactly what you're saying, that uh, there are, um, I don't necessarily know whether it's optimal or um, things which can be found through experience, but there are ways um, to create these components in a very, um, I guess, a very receptive fashion to both um, traditional programmers and traditional artists as such thing yeah. exists still. Uh, and the description that he gave was also that when you found these aesthetic components, they also were something that the, the players of the game were very receptive to as well. So I think mm. there's some kind of universal uh, truism here that uh, w what is both simple and functional and beautiful in terms of art should also be the same way uh, in terms of code. In terms mm. of kind of gameplay components, though, 
the stuff that he described was very much associated with his own particular biases. And I thought that was actually quite interesting. But having concluded our formal discussion, we kind of talked slightly more informally about the potential for others to come in and put their own particular biases and create their own uh, particular atoms. And he was certainly receptive to that as well. So I guess my feedback would be, if irrespective of the feedback that you get from a certain number of individuals, you also probably need to allow this thing to be open-ended. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Dave Kerr's work with AI Planet uh, and, and these kind of simulations, but he very much created both a visual and underlying program open-endedness, which enabled people to contribute uh, things like rubber ducks and tigers and palm trees and coconuts that had mice living in them and various other things into a simulation environment. And whilst it was on kind of circa late 90s uh, OpenGL-esque, uh, you know, rendering, it created a, a texture to the simulation, uh, which was really phenomenal. I think he had uh, underlying flocking algorithms for various birds and then people manipulated that for the rubber ducks as they came into the simulation. So oh, I think that's Cygnus, yeah. What's it called? AI Planet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That looks very cool, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I think there are probably ways of doing things like that. And uh, Dave doesn't do so much artificial life stuff anymore. I've tried to coax him. He appeared on a couple of early Biota Lives. I think hmm. probably he was, I think he was the first um, Biota recording and uh, he predates both lives. And then we had one a year after that where he was talking about um, even more taking elements of AI Planet into um, into some kind of game engine that he was working on. But I think the, the, the prior history of this kind of development does exist. Um, it's just how you create new and interesting um, environments from that. Certainly what Steve was talking about made me think that he had half, well, he had more than half the puzzle uh, because he basically developed up to the, the graphics point. But it was just a matter for people to come in and replace the graphics point with, I guess, some underlying skin or something uh, uh, in order to allow it to be ported to Unity or, you know, whatever the latest, greatest yeah. thing is, VRML5 or what have you. Uh, but uh -huh. certainly this is a common theme within the community, the, this idea of... Uh, uh, I don't know, aesthetic atoms, let's just say, <laughs> what have you. Aesthetic componentry, uh, which which fits very well with artists and programmers alike. Uh-huh. Well, the uh, the virtual pets project, and uh, Aisha, I wanted to ask you about the Tamagot your Tamagotchi oh. experience before we're done. Um, is uh, what... what uh, what the, the fellow that I'm talking about working on this project, uh, and I can't say too much about it yet until maybe in a few months I can say more about it, but uh, we really want to uh, expose not so much a way for people to put different rendering schemes uh, like we've been talking about, but to expose all the parameters, to very craftily make parameters that are easy and, and semantically rich for people to adjust uh, in, in a very multidimensional way. And that, in a sense, is the artistic palette for, for this world that we're talking about building. So it kind of lets the art, the artistic uh, um, control penetrate down into the deep code, you know, by building, uh, I don't know about, you know, maybe script, script, scripting uh, 
to uh, entryways as well as parameter settings. Does that make any sense? Certainly, certainly. Another way of thinking about allowing artistic uh, manipulation of these things. So to fill in the blanks, I've talked about this previously. Jeffrey, um, I'm not sure if I've talked about with you specifically. I, I guess I probably haven't if, if you're raising it now. But I have. I think I talked about it with Gerald de Jung when he launched the Tetragotchis, uh, which are his new... Um, yeah his new Darwin at Home entities. But my experience with Bandai, I worked for a, a shell company based in Hawaii. The this long story associated with this was I was asked to talk, I think, at Biota 3, which was the one that you attended, I seem to recall. I couldn't do it because I was traveling at the time, but um, Sue Wilcox, who was organizing Biota 3, put me in contact with a fellow called Ian Kitajima, who was operating out of Hawaii at the time, he had an engineer that he kind of had on staff part-time who had developed a brick, quite literally the size of a house brick, um, that ran some basic interpreter and didn't really produce anything particularly wonderful. So uh, he, they came to me asking if I could write uh, an engine for these um, Tamagotchi creatures. And my first instinct was actually to write a text-based simulation to simulate what the interaction of 50, 100, 1,000 of these things on, through an online community would look like in terms ah. of how you could actually create an engine that was robust and survivable and could be put in a drawer for you know, three months and if the batteries were removed, you know, these kind of things. I mean, the basic kind of problems that... But also, what you describe in terms of scriptability, because it's a very graphical interface, I described in terms of not just body parts, but also the things that they ate and the various kinds of human interactions. I've not played with the Tamagotchi in the past decade, but certainly at the time they weren't particularly visionary in terms of artificial life. And they basically related around evolutions, cleaning up after them, feeding them, but not a lot more. The stuff that I added included things like um, teaching them uh, magic spells, uh, various kinds of wizardry things, teaching them to fly through interactions, but also this notion of body parts, which um, meant that if you had them fighting other ones and one of them was victorious, it could pluck off a body part from the other one, so like the wings or the tail or the teeth or something like that. And uh -huh. these things became very elaborate and kind of very similar to what I guess you see with like World of Warcraft and this kind of stuff where people build up armor and characters and these kind of things, except it was run on a little, I can't even remember what the resolution was. It was probably in the order of about 64 pixels by 64 pixels that they had yeah. such a relationship with this creature in. But then... Very that was that was a quite an exciting project. It went on for about nine months. I was moved to being the CTO of the company, and then um, the fellow who was running it was picked up by a VC firm in Hawaii. Uh, I was allowed to keep a majority of the technology, and I released, uh, I think, almost all of it open source on SourceForge. I may still have some of it on CD. I've got a lot of backed up stuff from that period. Um, but my experiences with that were very much that um, just through the interface alone, this was literally a thing with buttons on it and very similar to the existing Tamagotchi kind of design at the time, which was, I guess, 
maybe three or four buttons, I think, on a on a device that was about as big as half the palm of your hand or smaller. Yes. Um, but the idea there was also that they, I mean, the, the trick in terms of our own dealing with venture catalysts was that I created a Palm Pilot version at the time, and mm -hmm. basically people could, which simulated all the functionality. So people could have them beamed to their Palm, uh, and then once they had it on their Palm, they could, you know, play with it with the other Palm users as well. So it actually had a quite a, a strong playership within the VC <laughs> that we were dealing with too. Um, and the, you know, I'd be talking with people in New York, and there'd be a long silence, and then someone would say, "How do I turn the apple into, you know, breathing fire again?" or things like this. So uh -huh. I think these things are very, very addictive, and I think you can get a lot of really interesting feedback. But it really, I mean, my, I'm not an artist. I'm not trained as an artist at all. My experience with this, and I worked with an artist, thankfully, um, who was on staff and really introduced him also how to make pixel art, which is what it was fundamentally too, in terms of just getting the maximum visualization out, out of the minimum number of pixels. But um, it, was a, it was a very interesting experience because I guess my, my background in simulation really led me towards doing things like large-scale text simulation first, and once I had the engine to a stability level that I was happy with, I'd then start looking at things like the graphics uh, and then make the graphics more compelling and the narrative more compelling. But I got the sense particularly because I didn't want this to be a thing that crashed or you know, that caused children concern or was immediately thrown away or you know, never had the batteries replaced. Um, Ian Kitajima gave a number of insightful talks about how the relationship with batteries, um, I think in the end, I want to say it was a AAA-powered one. There was a big distinction between Japan and the U.S. in terms of the availability of batteries. If you remember the early Donkey Kongs and those kind of things, they had strange watch batteries in the back, which were relatively easy to get in Japan, but absolutely impossible to uh -huh. get in the U.S. and elsewhere. Um, uh -huh. So the case that I designed in the end did allow for... Um, uh, AAA battery. I think just one AAA battery was relatively low power. Uh, but no, it was an interesting experience because what I found was a lot of the ideas that we, you know, we we develop as artificial life developers, we experience and, you know, the, the, the knowledge base that we create is actually directly applicable to something which is very commercializable. If it was a company, my, my real interest was plush toys, actually. Uh, and I thought if I could put, for example, a noble ape brain in a plush toy bear, then yeah. you would have a very compelling kind of children's toy. Um, in fact, having seen the, um, it's a, I think it's a Kubrick um, AI, artificial intelligence, with that little boy fellow playing a robot boy. He has a bear, and this the film came out probably five years after I was um, with Pocket Bites, which is the name of the company. Uh, that was basically the idea that I had at the time, although, truth be told, there were things like Furbies and various other uncompelling kind of AI-esque ch children's toys that were coming out around that time frame too. Um, but, I mean, my thought was always to create really, really um, good user-interactive AI plush toys um, through that company, but unfortunately it, it just wasn't meant to be, basically. But certainly in terms of another member of the community having done the trench work associated with this kind of development, and 
the um, chip that was going to be in this device was not even a microprocessor. It was a microcontroller, a kind of stripped-down Z80-style thing. Uh, so I certainly had those kind of experiences. The interesting part also was the social element of going to companies like Marvel and Hasbro and these kind of things and pitching this device to them as well because it was content agnostic fundamentally. Um, so I think there's still a lot there. I think there's still a, a lot of possibilities. I know, you know, we, we live in the age of Farmville and these kind of things, but the the virtual pet space, to use a wonderful Bay Area um, kind of cudgel term, is is still relatively rich for artificial life developers that have a particular interest in that area. Yeah, I think so. And and, and you just mentioned uh, taking a noble ape brain and putting it into a, a toy. Uh, that's a very interesting concept. And, and the idea of taking a simulation, the different parts of the simulation and plucking them out of the, of the, of the box that they're running in and putting them in real physical objects out in the world um, you know, including mobile devices and so on and so forth, uh, that that brings it into a whole interesting new dimension. And um, you know, it could be that th- there's a, there's a future in uh, social gaming which involves not not only the not only the social element of people all sitting in front of their computers, but people with toys and mobile devices and so on. You know, in other words, uh, this thing can penetrate multiple mediums, um, multiple media. Certainly. So, so that, that, that there's a lot of in, there's a lot of potential in that. I think. I think the elements of richness and complexity are, are two things. I mean, following a theme from my SRI talk, are two things that we as a community have a really strong uh, sense of. And I think it would be relatively easy to create something that was very simple that had the appearance of doing what we're talking about. But the addition of of the kind of richness and complexity that artificial life developers have have traditionally had means that we could actually create something that would be considerably more uh, compelling. Now, I mean, that being said, there's always the chance that the, the, the simple version will win out initially. But I think certainly these ideas don't seem to be dying anytime soon. Uh, and, yeah, I, I don't know. I've certainly... Um, we've had on a robotics hobbyist in the past. I can't think of the fellow's name, but apologies if he's listening in. Uh, an Australian fellow. I think he was on with yeah. Steve Grand, actually. Um, and I, I think the robotics community uh, probably has a, a lot of... Particularly the hobbyist robotics community probably has a lot of interesting uh, components that could add to this this tapestry too. Yeah. Well, um, I mean, we've had a lot of discussions about um, how complex your your A-Life simulation can can get and sort of these limitations um, and um, how that has, often that has a lot to do with the, the limitations of the environment. Um, and if you can take your artificial life simulation and kind of uh, fragment it into pieces that distribute it out into the real world where it's interacting with real people uh, in some fashion, um, that might create the rich, endlessly changing environment that allows the A-life to evolve endlessly. You know what I mean? 
Certainly, certainly. I think this is a yeah, this is a very interesting discussion. Certainly, I I try to keep. I mean, it's it's difficult because I'm kind of hobby limited. You know? <laughs> I think we we all have a kind of finite amount of free time to look into these things. But uh-huh. I certainly find myself in in lunch hours occasionally on the hobbyist robotics sites, getting a sense of how amazingly. Uh, detailed these things are, although they are moving in directions which I don't find particularly humanizing. I, I would need to create uh. some kind of strange furry centipede-like thing, I guess, and that really, they're not very, you know, they're not like teddy bears in yeah. the way they appear. So I don't know if we just, I guess you could probably make them cat or dog-like, and kind of uh, Doctor Who canine throwback and that might work actually in terms of how they they would appear uh but yeah in terms of the hobbyist robotics community they're still creating creatures that look very much like bugs rather than um you know endearing you know chubby toddler like um creatures but i do agree with you i think the ability and this is the thing that interests me with bob potter's specialization work is that some of these pieces of the puzzle are coming together independently of our musing on Biota Live. I mean, I think the nature of these things is that uh, if you, and this is the beauty of open source as well, if you put that stuff out there, the right interesting people will occasionally just fall in your lap with the skill sets in order to make this happen. Uh, And I think certainly, uh, as I talk to more roboticists and also have interactions with people like Bob Bottram, I get the sense that none of this is impossible, and moreover, it will probably happen a lot faster than we can imagine. I, mm. I get the sense that there's a kind of, uh, you know, the, well, I mean, we've spent so many years working on these things, I guess rapidness is all relative in these kind of contexts. But uh, mm. I certainly get the sense with regards to the socialization, the sphere development. The, firstly, you need sparring partners, fundamentally, and, and yeah. I'm, I'm completely... Um, I'm completely sympathetic with that, but also I think there's an element of uh, just being being malleable uh, in the, the potential directions of these things. Um, but certainly, I I can't see it in the near future. Although my hope is uh, in the relatively near future to get more into distributed computing um, and put Nodelape in a distributed fashion. Uh, particularly uh-huh. talking to Bruce, but also, I mean, Bob's work has done that with the um, Nobelope uh, web server. But yes, mm-hmm. I think it's it's very interesting times, and really, it's um, for folks listening in. I mean, I get the impression that the A Life conference will draw uh, a lot of uh, recent graduates and potentially some undergraduates. Their own directions and ideas are, are very much, you know, leading the way with regards to these kind of thinking. And I think the rest of us, um, maybe this is a conversation that I've had with Bruce previously. Maybe we touched on it um, when we were in the Bay Area, uh, when I was in the Bay Area with you, um, was this idea that, uh, you know, we, we really are um, not necessarily being led, but doing some of the teaching with some of the areas with the view that others will probably do. Um, you know, the, the future work on this. Uh, although having said that, I think certainly my coding days aren't over uh, and there's still a lot of work to be done. Yeah. So in terms of this project, is this going to be a... Is the anticipation that this will be a commercial project? Will it have an open source component? Will it be launched in a time frame or is this still high-level discussion? Oh, are you referring to this virtual pets idea? Certainly. 
Oh, this would most likely not be at open source. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, this is happening in kind of a different area. Uh, for sure, the gene pool thing is 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 going to move in that direction, but this project is um, probably wouldn't be that way. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, feel free to feel free to have either recorded or unrecorded conversations with me about my my trench experiences with. Uh, with these kind of things. And like I say, I think the majority of the source is available on SourceForge under eToy. I think that's uh-huh. the, um, the, the moniker that I'm using on SourceForge for this work. Uh, but also, I think there are a lot of things which are, are relatively intuitive and shared. I mean, the, the artificial life experience in terms of developing uh, you know, agents in a simulated environment gives you a lot of the tools necessary for creating other forms of uh, of agents, particularly compelling interactable agents. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, if you can at least give sound bites associated with the progress of this, as we have you on future biotolites, Jeffrey, it would really be a, a pleasure oh, to uh, to get updates. Yeah, yeah. Within a month or two, I should I should have a lot more to say about it. Very good, very good. Well, Jeffrey, it's been a pleasure as always having the chance to chat with you this evening. We've we've touched on a number of eclectic topics, and I think yes, you're certainly. certainly filling that niche in the Biota Live rotation. When we have you on, we we always seem to get to the to the deep theoretical issues, which is wonderful. Yes, if only we could continue on and actually delve into them. <laughs> yes. We just apply so many things, but it's fun. It's really fun. Certainly, certainly. I'm increasingly, I, I don't know whether it's interacting with Dick Gordon or what it is, but I increasingly find myself creating sets of links following these kind of discussions. So if, if you want to continue the discussion through link mailing and general, maybe other things, papers or what have you, I'm, I'm more than happy to continue that. And for folks listening in who'd also like additional references, um, please do get in contact with me, Tom at com, and I'll certainly provide you what I provide Jeffrey. Cool. Thanks, Tom. Well, it's been a pleasure as always. And um, in terms of the in terms of the next few months, this is something that you're working on. Do you have any other plans or projects you'd like to talk about on BiotaLive? Oh, you mean on the next on the next BiotaLive? Well, not necessarily the next one, but I mean, uh, if for folks listening in, is there anything that they can uh, they can look out for with anticipation aside from the virtual uh, the virtual pets project and potentially are you are you is it talking anywhere, giving any classes, or doing anything like that in the near future? No, I actually don't have. Uh, I'm not. Uh, I'm not very public facing in, over the next uh, next while. But I hope to be soon. Once I finish, I've got two books that are kind of still in the in the gurgling stages here, and that those should be done soon. And then um, I've got uh, the the, uh, the the gene pool iPad. That might be the one to look for. If, if I can get my act together, uh, there might that might be available very soon, and it will probably be free for the first uh, for the first period. So very good, very good. Yeah, I'll, I'll let you know about that. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, thank you very much for the chance to chat with you this evening, Jeffrey, and look forward to talking to you soon. Good night. Awesome. Thanks.